morning to some notes. You can pull those out. I've got a few fill in the blanks. Uh, if you remember, this is now going back three weeks, the continuation of a passage in Ephesians chapter 5 that I read at most every wedding that I do. And um, usually I just preach the sermon by reading the passage and I don't give a full-blown sermon on it. And this morning we get to uh, spend a little bit of time lingering in the passage. We're looking at the role of uh, husbands this morning. We looked at the role of wives a few weeks ago, and I know some of those wives were like, we're not missing the husband part. You are, we are coming back on that week. Uh, we're not going out of town. I don't care if it is spring break. Um, if you remember, just from a few weeks ago, I'm not going to go back and, and re-preach how I got into marriage and all of that. Um, and so you'll need to go back and listen to the podcast or something. But just by way of review, um, relationships... And by the way, if you're, uh, if you're unmarried this morning, uh, and, and uh, even if you're a woman this morning, what I would say is that this is God's Word, and as I open God's Word, and I'm in the middle of some Old Testament passage wondering, Lord, why did you include this in the Holy Scriptures? What is it you have for me? It's really an act of faith, isn't it, to read God's Word and say, God's, God's Word has application for my life today. Um, it's, it's clear if you're engaged this morning that this is pretty applicable. You're, you're both listening up really closely. If you're married, you're listening closely. But I would say even if you're single, um, that there's all kinds of truths here to be listening for. And there are things to, to grab out of it. And so just uh, maybe even just where you're sitting, whisper a prayer saying, God, what do you have for me this morning? And, uh, and let's dive in. Relationships, uh, whether you're married or not, this is true, but relationships tend toward drifting and and isolation by nature. Uh, And we covered this kind of extensively, so this is by way of review. But if you were to take a marriage relationship and have two people get married uh, and just set them them free, it would be a little bit like on the slow-moving down escalator where you don't really think about it, you're not conscious of it, but that's just the way relationships tend toward drifting. Meaning this... You have to counter-steer that. You have to be fighting against that, or else that's just the, the natural way relationships will drift. Marriage is a gift from God. Some people find this hard to remember at certain times. Uh, it is clearly really difficult to be married. Otherwise, people wouldn't be splitting up so much. Uh, no one that I've ever met, talked with, heard of, said, man, we're going to get married just for the experience of divorce. We just want to see what that's like. No one does that. You know, no one, no one does that. It's just... It's a reality. People head toward marriage because they're going to they're gonna beat the odds. They're going to be the different couple. And uh, probably most of us, many of us, uh, were naive in some ways in not knowing how much we didn't know toward how difficult it might be to, to, um, to, to do that. As we unpack this, you'll see that actually living a married life and being a husband and being a wife that God calls us to be, it's not only difficult, it's actually impossible by human, by human standards. And so that's where the grace of God comes in. That's where the gospel comes in. That's where the cross being central to your marriage comes in. Um, It was probably in 1993 or so that I was on a college water ski retreat, and I was um, out intertubing because the whitecaps on Lake Don Pedro were way too big for anything else. And uh, we were out there, and I I was double tubing with my buddy Adam Miller, and we're just having a blast out there. And the next thing you know, Adam Miller's big, fat, hard head bashed me right in the nose like this. It just went pow. And um, you know how it is when you just get popped in the nose like that. I mean, I just saw stars after I regained my vision. All I saw was stars. 
and I'm laying on a bouncy boat, you know, like this, and they couldn't stop the bleeding. It was kind of a big mess, actually. There was, an e there was a nurse on, on board, like we're in a plane, uh, on the boat, and, um, and she couldn't get it to stop, and she looked at, she took one look at it and said, your, your nose is busted. I'm like, well, that's kind of a cool story. You know, I'll get to, I'll get to have that in my back pocket now. Uh, but it hurt. It really hurt a lot. And um, needless to say, kind of recovering in a tent in about 110-degree weather, eating campout food, was just so-so. I wouldn't, I wouldn't have chosen that as a, you know, recovery mode, but it's, it was what it was. So we're driving back home, and, um, and we get back home, and we go to the doctor, and we find out that the way that they uh, straighten out broken noses, um, yeah, I mean, it's just not pleasant. There's, you think in your mind, you're like, how would I do it? Yeah, that's not pleasant. No, neither is this. It just isn't pleasant. Um, it looks a little bit like a, like a tuning fork, and it's two metal prongs like this. And, uh, and they basically put it in your nose, and they say, one, two, three, and they just pop it back in. And um, this did not sound appealing to me uh, at all. Uh, I had a limited amount of time while the cartilage was still kind of loose, I guess, um, to make this decision. And they, they decided, they, they looked at me and did tests or whatever. I don't know how they test these things, but I did not have a deviated septum, meaning my taste buds would not be messed up. My smell would not be, be messed up. The only thing, to, the only reason to do this was cosmetic. Um, now, I happened to be engaged at the time. So the one woman uh, in the world I was trying to impress was there, and I asked her opinion. I said, can you live with a guy with a crooked nose? Um, I played hockey at the time, too, so, you know, it wouldn't be that out, outlandish. I had all my teeth. Um, you know, things were, things were looking up for me. And, uh, and she said, yeah, I'm fine with it. And so I chose the easy way out, okay? Now, put yourself in my shoes. I'm sure you would have maybe done the same thing. Uh, I did not want anyone putting anything near my nose for, for like several weeks. And even then, I'm still kind of cautious. So don't put things near my nose, um, unless it's food of some sort. Um, I'm telling you the broken nose story because of this. Now you're all looking at my nose. It's a little bit crooked, okay, but it's kind of gone away over time. Um, <laughs> these are the distracting things I call attention to. Sorry. Bring it back. Here we go. Here's why I'm telling you this. Men, we're going to talk this morning about what it is to be a husband according to our creator's design. He's called us to some things. He's challenged us to some things. And you will... Uh, you will hear some things this morning that will show yourselves to be out of alignment. Now, uh, there's someone in our midst right now who's in the middle of, um, of physical therapy. And the reason this person is putting themselves through the torture of physical therapy is because they want to walk well again. They want to function normally with their ankles and feet and knees again. And so you go through that. If any of you have been through that, you know how excruciating that can be, how discouraging that can be. But the choice is, is one or the other. It's move forward through the pain, right, and get things working again, or it's to remain in that situation for the rest of your life. Men, this is where we're at as husbands. We're going to hear some things today, and unlike this, this, uh, this, this nose story I just told you, it's not just cosmetic. It's not just a cosmetic fix that we're talking about. And the choice is really one of two things. It's to, it's to see the problem, it's to see that things are crooked, it's to see that things are broken, and say, it's too painful to go forward. I don't want you near my nose, in essence. Or it's to say it's out of alignment, it's broken, it's not how God designed it. I've got to push through the pain and move forward in this. Some of you men and wives are in a place in your marriage right now where many of the things I'm talking about won't, uh, won't hit many nerves because God just has you in this great season of grace. 
relish that, but also know this. Next week is coming. It's just true. And the month after that is coming. And next year is coming. And I've been around long enough to know now and around enough families and people to know this. If you had an up year this year, I'm not trying to bum you out, but just brace yourself. I mean, these are seasons of kind of like storing up blessing. Prep yourself. So what, I, what I'm saying today may not have immediate impact, um, but, but it will at some point. Final thing before we move into the text and, and kind of where we're going, you could be turning to Ephesians 5, by the way, is this. It's very tempting for spouses to try and be the Holy Spirit for each other. And wives, can I just, can I just um, speak to you for a moment? Do not try and be the Holy Spirit for your husband this morning. As we're talking through some things, as we're working through some things, I am going to talk about some things that your man probably does really, really well. And you've been very, very cared for. Just breathe a, breathe a prayer of thanks to God for that. I promise you, I will touch on some area that he's not so good at. Because all of us stumble in many ways. And what we don't need, what us guys don't need is this. We don't need you furiously taking notes so that on the way home, you can say, hey, I've set up um, a two-hour session for us to review all of the notes for today. Um, I've got some ideas. That's probably not going to help, okay? I predict that will go bad. If you do that and it goes well, you come let me know. I'll stand corrected. The other thing we don't need right here is this. Um, I know in good fun, it's kind of fun to nudge each other once in a great while. But what we feel is the eyes of ten people behind us that saw that nudge um, and we immediately go into self-defense mode, that's not helping us listen and receive what God would have for us. So I say that in kind of good fun, but I also say that in utter seriousness. God has chosen your mate to grow you into his image. Okay, Now, that's not the only method, but isn't that a major method for those of us who are married? I mean, Jesus is conforming you. Children of God, Jesus is conforming you into his image. And part of that sanctification process, if you are married, a large part of that sanctification process, if you are married, has to do with the person that you said I do to on a wedding day somewhere. Let's pray. We'll read the text and dive in. Spirit, we thank you so much for being in our midst right now. We thank you that we're not left orphaned. We're not left stranded. Jesus, you promised us before you left through your disciples that to all of your followers for all of time, we would not be left alone. And that in fact, it would be better that you depart this earth so that the Holy Spirit, the helper, could come alongside and enable us. And by faith, we know that, Spirit, you are dwelling in us. You're with us. You're an ever-present help in time of need, in time of trouble. Would you this morning, through the word of God, rebuke and correct and comfort and straighten out and even give us the courage to have ears to hear what you would say to us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Colossians, Paul kind of put up the cliff notes of this passage in Ephesians that I'm about to read. So I'm going to leave the Colossians passage up. We looked at the first part three weeks ago. We're looking at the husbands this week. Ephesians chapter 5, starting in verse 22. Here we go. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. 
Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband A few opening comments, and then I'm going to get really practical. I've given you three fill-in-the-blanks this morning for uh, for you to kind of just see uh, what's being laid out here. First of all, notice this. It doesn't say that husbands should be the head of the wife. It says that they are the head. And so one of the things that we sometimes do to avert responsibility or to to dance around things is, is do word studies on things. I heard a guy describe it this way one time. That's like doing a word study on, on the idea, like, what does it mean that water is wet? Let's dive into that. Let's just talk about it. No, no, no. Let's not talk about that at all. Let's just accept that for what it is. See it as God's word and say this is God's revealed word. It doesn't say, men, you, you should step up and, and be the head. It says that you are. I've watched many families, and here's what I can tell. I can see sometimes without ever meeting dad a certain tone that's set by the father in the home. Sometimes it's really, really good. I never have to have even met dad. I already have an idea of what the dad's like. Sometimes it's really bad. There's something off, and I meet dad, and the, and the puzzle pieces just come together. I had a traveling band one time show up at our youth group, youth group and, uh, and he said this. He said, long before I ever meet the youth pastor, I can tell what um, their youth pastor is like by the attitude of the kids. Some kids are there just being snarky and making all kinds of cutting comments constantly. No one's helping us unload anything. They're just kind of there, wanting to be around us as the band. And some youth groups, just the second we get off, they're so welcoming and they're humble and they they just serve. And I, I watch the way that they interact with each other. And I can tell, long before I meet the guy, what the youth pastor is going to be like. That's headship. That's setting the tone. So without ever even trying to do it or saying you should do it, you just are. Now, that's a really humbling, challenging, and empowering thing. You look at your family and you say, we want to change direction. You pray, God in you, men, change me. Grow me up. You conform me to your image. My family is going to start trending that way. By the way, anything I say this morning, I want you to know I love families. I love my family. I love your family. Some of your families I know better than others. But this message today is so applicable because we have a a slew of kids that just left our presence that desperately need men to step up and be men as God created and designed them and is empowering them to be. And that's what this is about this morning. Paul uses five verbs here, and you can just see them laid out in the text. Loved her gave himself up for her to sanctify her, having cleansed her that he might present her. This is this kind of comprehensive look at how Christ loves 
the church. And that, of course, is our example. What I want to do this morning is kind of try and boil things down so that at a moment's notice, the Holy Spirit can call to mind, what does it mean to lead my family well? What does it mean to be the head of my wife? What, is that, what does that look like? There's a lot of books on leadership. I haven't done a count recently, but I one time just counted how many books on leadership there were. There are hundreds, if not thousands of books written on leadership. I have one book in my library that is specifically on followership. You go to Berean. That's a Christian bookstore. You go to Barnes & Nobles if they're still in business. Otherwise, go to Amazon. Try to find books on followership, what it looks like to be a good follower, how to do that well. You will not find that in print many places. But, of course, we know as a Christian that's where it all starts. Here's a boiled-down word that I want to show you, men, as what it means to lead your family. Ready? Here it is. It's to initiate. A leader does something always that others are either reluctant to do, don't know how to do, or are choosing not to do, and that is to initiate. Do you see the action laid out in how Christ loved the church? Five verbs. Love is a verb. Is, is an idea that has just been taken root, and I love that because it's true. In each of these things I'm going to lay out, here's what I want you to do. I want you to concentrate on taking the first step. You will not be the best at these things I'm going to lay out, but you should be the first. You should be the initiator in these different areas and things. I want to show you on screen, this is something I got from uh, a book that actually a few families are doing on, on, on raising godly young men. And I have two boys, and so I'm paying attention to that, and I'm seeking that out. And i um, not sure if my boys would still do this, but uh, at least for a long while they had this memorized. But we went over and over what a real man is. What I loved about this definition is it kind of brought a lot of things together. I want you to look for the word initiate, okay? Or, or initiative, uh, initiative or initiate, kind of built into these ideas, Okay? Look at the screen. Here it is. A real man rejects passivity, accepts responsibility, leads courageously, and expects the greater reward. And that's talking about God's reward. Now, this isn't specifically from this passage. This is kind of taking a whole biblical approach. But do you see how initiate is kind of built into at least three of those definitions? Here's the reason. When guys don't do that, they're not leading their family well. They're not heading their family the way God designed the family to work. Now, you can write that down. I didn't put that down, but that's, that's probably worth writing down right there. Uh, I'm forgetting the name of the book right now, and uh, I know Chuck would know it. What is it? No, that's a different one that we went through. I'll, I'll think of it. Um, but I, I want to put in your hands some tools uh, this morning that for further reading, uh, of course, the Scripture being uh, first and foremost. Now, um, husbands aren't the only one, or, or guys in general aren't the only ones who are susceptible to this, um, but, but this is certainly true of men. Uh, it's quite possible to get, to get a group of guys together, and, um, and I'll, just, I'll just take some of my friends who, uh, we, we love the Lord, and, and we're, we're pursuing Jesus, and we, um, we have families, and we can talk this way. We can be together, and we can be having a conversation, and we can say this, uh, we can say, man, um, I'm just so blessed. I have such a great wife. And the guy's are like, yeah, I do too. And we're just, we're thankful for that. 
And then I could say this. I could say, you know what? I really, really love my wife. And the other guy's like, yeah, man, I love my wife too. And the other one's like, yeah, I love my wife. And then the, the conversation can just kind of turn on a dime, right? And we can say, man, did you see the sharks get spanked last night? Man, <laughs> bummer. You know, they laid an egg for Easter. That's a, that's a, that's a bad deal. Um, but listen, I got tickets for the next, uh, for the next uh, game, uh, which is tomorrow night. Um, you know, do, do you want to go? And, and the guy can go, yeah, I'd love, I'd, I'd love to go there. I love the sharks. I mean, the sharks are awesome. I love them. And then they're like, yeah, we could stop by. We could get pizza on the way. And you're like, yeah, I love pizza. Pizza's so good. We just went from loving our wife, okay, to loving some boys playing hockey, to loving food, right? I mean, in, in three, just easy sweep. We do that all the time. Love our wife, love pizza, okay? Wives, try hard not to take this personally, okay? We're going to... We're going to try and equip ourselves with some better language for this. But, but the reality is we, we use this language all of the time. So, so then along comes the Bible or a preacher or a podcast or a book that says, men, love your wives. And we're like, we've got that. And guys can think we're loving them well because we enjoy them like we enjoy pizza. As long as it's hot and my favorite toppings. Right? And they're loving their wife. You just dig a little bit deeper and you're like, dude, you're not loving your wife. That's, that's not it at all. But without those definitions, we can kind of uh, project into that whatever we want. We love our wife because she's winning and she made the playoffs. But man, she fails at the penalty kill. We're going to boo her. I mean, this is what happens at a Sharks game, right? I mean, it's just fickle. It's up and down. So, so loving our wife, what does that really look like? And let's not project our own ideas onto it. Let's take a look at what the Bible says. Now, I'm going to grab just three kind of main categories for us. We could probably do more, uh, but I'm going to start here. The first one is this. Husbands, love your wife by sacrifice. And I thought of this later. I should probably, I should, you should probably write in there self-sacrifice, okay? Don't sacrifice anything else but you. That's the sacrifice that I'm talking about. One of the things that any of us can do, because we're, we're fallen, and we think this way, and we're wired this way, we're hardwired this way, and we need Jesus to come and, and empower us differently, is, is, to, um, is to do things sometimes in such a way that we get something out of it. Now, in really ugly term, terminology, we'd call that manipulation and other sorts of things, and that certainly goes on in relationships all the time. But, but man, let me say this. Here's, here's the big idea here. Don't love your wife to get a response. Don't love your wife to get anything in return. One of the things that saddens me is that if you look at a lot of writing in relationships, and I have an entire lower bookshelf dedicated to relationships and marriage and dating and all kinds of things, and I've read almost all of them all the way through. And much writing, whether Christian or not Christian writing, falls into this kind of a category. And it's painted something like this, men. Love your wives and do this. You go to Lisa's tea treasures with them for an afternoon, and you spend two hours there with her, and you really be into it. You point the finger, you eat the biscotti, you smell it first. Whatever you do at Lisa's tea treasures, never been there. You do that, and then you'll get a night out with the boys, right? Or you'll get to go do this, or you'll get to go do your hobby. 
Now, even in Christian circles, this same garbage is kind of put forth as what it means to love your wife or to love your husband. And that's not the kind of love that's demonstrated for us as Christ loved the church. Let's turn over for a moment to the Gospel of John. So flip to your left several books and go to John 13. This is an applicable uh, week for this. Ben's going to share in a couple moments about some Palm Sunday thoughts as we go into a season of communion. But we're going to be pointing always and most back to Jesus, our Savior, to, to see what this looks like. That's, that's what we're to model ourselves after is, is how Jesus loved the church. And in John chapter 13, look at this. It says this, starting in verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of the world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he now loved them to the end. Or some of your translations says this, he now showed them the full extent of his love. Verse 2, during supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, catch this right here, knowing the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. What Jesus is about to do, he does so with full and complete knowledge that he's been given authority over all things. Jesus, you're in authority over all things. Now we're going to see what Jesus does with that. Men you are given the responsibility and the authority of headship over your wife and eventual or current children. Jesus, knowing the authority that he had, rose from supper. Watch what he does. Verse 3, verse 4. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet. Knowing the authority that he had, Jesus rose from supper, from his place of comfort, from his dining, from his convenience, took off his outer garment, donned the apparel of a slave, bent down, and actually did the chore. Here's something that guys in Christian circles get off with all the time, and I've used this in my mind. Men. Love your wife as Christ loved the church. How did Christ love the church? Well, ultimately, the sacrifice was made of his life, right? So, so men, we're to lay our lives down for our wives. Here's what goes on, here's what goes on in the minds of men. We say this, I would be willing to lay my life down for my wife. I think I can say that with utter sincerity, that if my wife's life were in danger, I think and I hope and I pray, I wouldn't give it a second thought that I would lay my, my life down for my wife. The problem with that is this. Few of us in this room probably will be asked to do that on a grand scale. But on a daily scale, the question really is, do you lay your life down for your wife? Not would you. 
not in some fanciful thing that may happen. I would jump in front and stop the bullet from hitting her or any of that stuff. But do you? I think, I think the, the, the deception is this. I would be willing to. I would do that if that opportunity ever presents itself. Jesus didn't say in theory he would lay his life down. He didn't say in theory he came to serve. What he did was he rose from supper, took off his outer garment, donned the clothes of a servant, and did the chore to his discomfort and to his inconvenience. Men, that's the call. That's how we're to love our wives. That's how we're to serve our family. Not be willing to do it, but to actually do it. When I was a high school pastor, I had a packet that I would hand someone. People would all the time come to me and say, I want to help the youth. They may have just seen an inspiring movie that that showed that if you pour into the youth, a nation can turn. And I believe that's totally true. And so they got all fired up. They're like, I want to be a part of things. So I had a 10-step process. I said, here you go. Here's a packet. You look it over. Here's what it means to be serving high school students. Some would continue. Some would get the packet and never want to work with youth again. They, they, had a, they had a different idea. They go, wow, that looks like work. That looks kind of debased. That looks under, underneath me. That looks below me. I've told you this before. So many people come to the youth pastor. I want to teach the youth. I'm like, fantastic. We always need people teaching the youth. What I need you to do is next Thursday, show up an hour and a half early when I get there, and you set up chairs with me. You got that? And when they're done, when they all leave, you need to stay a half hour late, and you need to clean up their mess, kind of the final things, and just get everything straightened back. Would you do that with me? No, 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 no. You didn't hear me. I want to teach the youth. I'm like, dude, I'm teaching you how to teach the youth right here. This is what it is. You come and serve... And you'll have something to, 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 to teach the youth. What they meant was this. I want to get up and share my amazing opinions about life to people and then, and then get applauded, walk off, and have a latte with them. Because that's what I think working with youth is. Now, you don't need to read this, but this is, uh, this is a little pyramid. It's called the High School Leadership Involvement Pyramid. And... Again, you don't need to be able to see the words. I'll read them for you. But at the very top is, is the first level. That's being a high school leader. That's being a hands-on person working with, with leaders. Next is called a hang time leader, which was kind of a small group leader. And that's moving into a deeper level of commitment. And there are more responsibilities that, that, that go with that. Uh, third below that was a base coach. That's where you took one whole area of ministry and you said, I'm going to be the Bunsen burner under this area of ministry. Do you see that the... The areas get larger as we get, as we get further involved. And do you see that they're going lower and lower? Below that is the high school intern. Well, there's a glorious job. The high school intern gets through all kinds of cool stuff, and he really does. But guess what? The lower you go, the more base you become, the more that you serve. Below all of that is the youth pastor. That's the way it works in Christian leadership. Gentiles lord it over. They climb. Christians Hold up. And the more involved you got, the bigger time commitment, the bigger pouring out of your life you were going to do, and the more you were going to support. Men, do you want to know what it means to lead your family? It means to be on the bottom. My kids, without even knowing it, displayed this for me. Here it is in graphical form. 
The guys are along the bottom. The girls are on top. The guys are supporting the ladies in the household and the, and, and the youngest in the household. That's the picture about what it means to be the head of the family. Now, there's an enemy of this happening. You know what it is? It's the self. I love having artists in our community, and Switchfoot is a band that I was listening to on the way to the beach, which was appropriate because they're all surfers. And we're listening to Switchfoot on the way to the beach on Friday, and we heard a song called Mess of Me. And there's a line in Mess of Me that says this, I am my own affliction, I am my own disease. He's giving a, a theologically, doctrinally correct statement in this song, Mess of Me. He goes on to say, there ain't no drug that can fix me. Now, I know that's not good grammar, but that's great doctrine. They've got the doctrine right. I'd rather go for good doctrine over, over, over good grammar. There's no outside drug that's going to fix me. I'm the problem. Men, it's the self that's the enemy of you getting on the bottom of the pyramid and saying, I got this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to shoulder this. I'm going to be the leader by serving. The self constantly asks for more. What about my needs? What about my hurts? What about my time? Sacrificial love, on the other hand, challenges us to give ours to our spouse in uncomfortable and unreasonable ways. Ways that will make your coworkers say, What? Why do you do that? That's not necessary. I've been married a lot longer than you, and I don't ever have to do that. Sacrificial love calls us to unreasonable and uncomfortable ways of sacrifice. Ways that will cost us, men, emotionally, it will cost us time, and it will cost our pride. Jesus, laying aside the outer garment, laying aside the authority, laying aside the rabbi, the teacher, the master, the one that was looked to, the one that the disciples hung on every word, laid it aside and took up and did the chore of washing feet. Jesus said in Mark 10, 42, um, the greatest among you must become your what? Servant or slave. Remember last week's message from Josh? Must become your slave. The first is to be the slave of all. Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and ultimately to give his life as a ransom for many. Guys, this means this, that ladies' night shouldn't be a special occasion. We're once in a great while. We're like, you choose. What do you want? What do you need? That ought to be an ongoing part and rhythm to our marriages. Babe, what about you? What do you think in this? How do you feel about this? How's the temperature for you? What's your schedule like? In a word, inconvenience yourself for your wife's development. Verse 29 of our passage back in Ephesians. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. Here's the second heading that we're going to talk about. Protect and provide. Think about a safe harbor. The home ideally should be a place where your spouse, where your wife can come home, where your kids can come home. They can have their needs met and they're in a protected safe harbor. They're no longer on edge. They're no longer focused on, on just keeping afloat and, and not capsizing. They can just take a deep breath 
and just be who they are. They can just, they can just kind of let it out. Protect and provide. Let me start with protection. All kinds of different ways we could go with this, but I'm going to mention a few. The first is physical protection. Physical protection is just the idea that uh, you are sacrificially putting her in front of yourself. One of the things my wife and I love to do, these are cheap dates when your husband's an intern and studying at college uh, and you're married. You, you pay for gas, which was a lot cheaper back then. You drive to San Francisco and you watch, you watch the uh, Bush guy, Pier 39. You guys know the, the uh, Bush guy? Yeah, you've seen him. I mean, people watching already is just kind of fun to do. But people watching with the Bush guy is, like, awesome. It's just really cool. Um, this guy, who I don't think uh, had a regular job, I think this was his job, he just had a little can out for, for money, and then he just h- held two bushes. And he didn't, wasn't even that good at it. He just kind of, like, crouched behind, like, a tree or something, like he was a bush, okay? And then uh, as people are walking along crowded Pier 39 and just all the mobs of people, he would just wait until, you know, until, like, people weren't watching. Then he'd just go, ugh. And he wouldn't, it wouldn't be the big giant thing. He would just, all he had to do, lean out like that. And the unexpected of a bush coming at you in any way, shape, or form just freaked people out. Now, here's what's fascinating. You could have, no joke, we would have, there'd be 20 people, you've seen it, 20 or more people are standing next to bush guy. I mean, they're just standing there, just a crowd. If you're walking along, there, there should be something going, wow, why is everyone here kind of looking at me? But people would walk along, and then they'd get had. Um, and, and what's funny is after getting scared and made fun of and shamed, they would take money out of their pocket and put it in his can. I mean, it was, you can't figure human nature. I, I didn't, I still never understood that. But here was the best one, hands down, stood up my mind the most. This was back when Hulk Hogan was big the first time around and big time wrestling and all that kind of stuff. And this guy had like this, this like, I think it was hot pink or something, but a big old tank top and it was really loose, you know, and this guy was ripped. I mean, he was huge. He was about like three times the size, my, my, you know, we're good. Um, just huge, right? And he wanted to show it off. And so, you know, he's walking down. I mean, his arms are out like this, you know, and he's like, yeah. He's just cruising. He, 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 didn't, he didn't wonder why everyone was looking at him. He's like, yeah, I'm used to this. I love this. And here's what he did. He, he's, kind of, he's, kind of holding, he's kind of holding the hand of his girlfriend. Now, his girlfriend is this tiny, petite thing. And, and it made him look even bigger. I think he only dated people that made him look big. I'm not sure. Just a guess. But he's walking along with this, with this girl. And she's, and she's there, and he's walking along, strutting his stuff. Bushman comes out at him. In a flash, he grabs her, shoves her this way, and goes, Ah! <laughs> now, because there were 19 other people, I laughed. I, I'm just saying, if it was just me, I would have been like, Yeah, I don't know what I would have done. But everyone starts laughing. I mean, it was the most ridiculous thing to take this little girl and feed her to the bush. Like, here, take her. <laughs> Guys, do this, except flip it. It's just totally opposite, okay? The opposite of what this guy did to the bush, to the bush man, do that. So in other words, protect at risk to yourself getting damaged. That's, that's physical protection. How about financial Financial protection is this. Financial protection means this. Does that mean your wife shouldn't work? Not always. But you men bear the brunt. You bear the burden 
of financially providing for your family. I recognize that seasons come and go. I recognize that we live in a part of the country where, where it's hard sometimes not to have two incomes. But don't get sucked into just a cultural picture of what it looks like to have the all-American family that are falling apart, by the way, at one every two. And think that that's a good model to, to pattern yourselves after or to follow. Men, step up and financially provide for your families. Emotional. This is, this is a hard one for most guys. To emotionally protect my wife. How do I do that? I'm not even, it's hard for me to even be emotional in, in, in general sometimes. Many guys are saying. So, so how do I do that? Here's what you do. You keep learning. You keep asking. You ought to know your wife so much better at year 20 than you did at, at, at year 3. So many guys stop being a student of their, of their girlfriend. I mean, they, were, they just studied that girl when they were dating. They knew every little nuance of what she liked and didn't like and would throw in surprises when they were trying to, to woo her. And when that stops, this stops as well. How about socially? Some of you guys are like me. You're energized by being around people. You like being at parties. You like being out. If you have a wife that enjoys and is energized by solitude and by being at home, you need to pay attention to that. Does that mean you never, ever go out again? No, it doesn't. But what it means is this. You sacrificially pour into your wife and build into your wife. And you say, honey, if, this, if going to this is stressing you out too much, if this is freaking you out too much, I know you don't like these big things, then you know, we don't have to go. Just give her the out. If on the way to these things, um, she's freaking out and she's stressing out. And you know this is because you're going to a place with a lot of people that she won't know. Protect her in that. You go into a room and you can meet 39 people in 5.6 seconds and you're off and running. If you've left your spouse at the door and you know she's quasi-terrified or just not that into it, you've done a disservice to your wife. Pay attention socially to her. One more is with family. Uh, one of the things we talk about with, with um, premarital couples all the time, it's so important, is this. What are your expectations and how are you going to do holidays with your family, with the extended family? What's the level of expectation of their involvement? How is this all going to go? Husbands, let me just say this. From being married now for a lot of years, uh, in relation to some of you and not so many in relation to some of you, um, and hearing from couple after couple after couple. By the way, my wife and I quasi-prepared this together. I kept asking her, I said, babe, give me more input on what, on what us guys need from this passage. This is one that rises to the top. Ready? Men, protect your wife from your parents, from her in-laws. Time and again, what happens is this. Johnny, we'll pick on Johnny, is a little boy He's raised, he grows up, he gets married, but for some reason, mom still has a hold on Johnny, and Johnny can't ever stand up to mom in ways that Johnny should man up and stand up to mom. Leave his father and mother, as the passage talks about, cleave to his wife, and be a new family. We talked two weeks ago that honoring your parents never ends. Obeying your parents ends, in a sense, when you're out from under their authority. And part of a bride being walked down by her dad and handing the arm of, her, of his precious daughter to this groom is saying, she's yours now. She's under your authority now. 
So that means men, when, when mom is doing things, moms can have a sharp tongue towards your wives. You step in and you protect your wife from that. You be the one to deal with it. A lot of times in our household, these kinds of things go on where we say, you know what, let's let the wives figure out. If it was left to the men, we'd meet like once a decade. We're like, I think Christmas is tomorrow. I think families are supposed to get together. Let's go golfing. I mean, we just, we would be terrible. So what we do a lot of times is this. We say, let's let the wives handle it. You guys get it figured out. Don't let the wives figure it out in this area. Wives, gently and appropriately speak up about this and say, uh, babe, this is an area I, I just, I, I need your, I'm, I'm feeling attacked here. Woman after woman has come and confided that, that this is a reality and this is a problem. This is an area to protect. It doesn't, it doesn't center just on in-laws and parents, but it does. There are some families that have said, as a Christian family now, uh, I have a lot of family that isn't Christian as well. As a Christian family, we, we can go do these things, but there are certain boundaries. We, can't, we, we will not be a part of that. We're not going to go do that. We love you, your family, you'll always be blood. We're here for you. We'll bend over backwards to be your family. But we have boundaries. We we can't do that. We're not going to participate in that. That's part of being a protector in the home. There's an innate sense that men have to provide and protect. Let me just say this. That is from God. Don't squelch that. Don't run from that. Don't, Don't hush that. Don't quiet that. That is from God to do that. Finally, spiritual protection. We're going to lead more into this, but that's another area of protection that's needed. Proverbs 31.10 says this, An excellent wife who can find, she is far more precious than jewels. Men, the moment that you're more protective of your boat on the weekends than you are of your bride, huge problems are there. Turn around. Repent. Get help. It happens. It happens in a lot of marriages. Guys so dialed into their retirement plan and their nest egg and their funding and all of that. Meanwhile, their kids are like we, they're just growing. I mean, they're growing whether they, they choose to or not, but they're growing in all kinds of crazy wrong directions. Their wife is just isolated from them. And if she were to see this passage in scripture, she'd say, there's no way that's true in my home. I'm not a precious jewel. I'm not far more precious. I could make a list of eight things more precious to my husband than me. Outside of God... There ought to be nothing above that. How about provision? Protect and provide. Financially, we've already talked about. How about direction? Where's your family going? Where's your family going? Now, some of you are just wired this way. You know where it's going for the next 10 years, and you've got it mapped out. Some of you have a a loose vision for your family, and and, and you know where some of the boundaries are. You say, we're going to do this, we're going to not do this. We're constantly faced with decisions. How are you doing at providing a vision for your family? Some people say this, man, I want to be more involved in ministry. What are you doing to achieve that goal? What plans are you making to get there? I want to go to Mexico one year. I want to go overseas one year. I want to be able to give more to the church and to the Lord's work and financially. I want to be able to live off of 60% of my income so I can pour more into things of God and into my family and into raising up a generation of godly men and women. What are you doing to get there? It doesn't just magically appear one day. Provide direction for your family. Provide emotional. Provide spiritually. To do all of this, men, takes inventory. It takes dialogue and discussion. It takes listening. And then it takes action. It's not enough to hear all this. 
Talk about it. Listen. Be a good listener. Absorb it all. It takes then implementing. Chances are you are good at, at one or two of those. You're good at inventory. You're good at finding out where's the family at emotionally. How are we doing spiritually? You're good at dialogue. You're good at listening. But, but in one of these areas, you're probably weak. You probably need a lot of help. Let me throw this out to you. In all that we're talking about, doesn't even have to be our men's community group, but would you please come to the men's community group? If Thursday nights isn't working for you for whatever reason, uh, option A, make it work. Look at your schedule and say, I mean, what's really important here? If this is important, I've got to make that work. If Thursday nights flat out doesn't work because you're involved with something else, let's figure it out. We'll, We'll have a second men's community group. Guys, we need other guys to figure this stuff out. There are times when the men are sharing in room seven over here on Thursday nights, and I'm listening to them, and I'm seeing God pouring out his blessing and grace and provision through this guy and how he leads his family. And I go, man, I'm not doing that at all. I'm not even thinking about that. I need to grab from that. I need to be encouraged from that. We have times of prayer where we just we pray for each and every guy in there as they're leading their families, that they would lead them biblically, that they would lead them well. We've got a good cross-section. Some guys have been married an awful long time in there that can give us some wisdom. Some guys that are relatively new to the faith and new to marriage. I want to show you some pictures really quick of what this looks like. I, didn't, I wasn't able to make this, but a few uh, of us in this room uh, know of a couple named Tom and Molly Sherman. And uh, Molly's, Molly's birthday was coming up. So months in advance, months in advance, six months in advance, Tom began to put out to all of her closest friends and family saying, hey, we're going to do a huge bash for my wife. We're going to do it upright. We're going to make it really special. Would you clear your calendar? You know what that took? Foresight and planning and executing. It all kept building. There were reminders. There were all kinds of things pointing towards this night. And then all of a sudden, the night came to be, and Tom had gone ahead, and he had put up pictures of her as a girl. She was a huge athlete, and so all over the place were pictures of her, of her growing up times, all these beautiful things. He, he, he rented out a, a catering service to come and provide food, an incredibly beautiful place. And then the payoff, when Molly got to walk in and realize what was going on on her birthday... And she looked around and she just saw all of this honoring her, cherishing her. And look at Tom. Tom's like, yeah! (laughs) Booyah! I'm the man. I know it. I mean, that that is nourishing and cherishing your bride, man. Now, here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying you have to go out and spend the kind of money that may have been spent on this. I'm not saying even that your wife would particularly enjoy this particular event. You know whose job it is to figure that out? It's yours. You be a student of that gift God has entrusted to you, and you figure it out. If it's an isolated time on a long beach just by yourself in utter silence, man, that's the ticket. Go do it. Praise God that he built the beach for you, and it's free. That's just a good thing. Don't go cheap, man. Um, that's, that's just a great picture of what it looks like. Here's, here's my question to you. Um, uh, one more thing, gosh, on spiritual. Dads, you're the family pastor. You're the family priest. You're a microcosm of the church. 
And you are to be leading your family spiritually. And we covered this somewhat in other parts of Ephesians. But let me just say this. Would you every day value the gospel and have it on display in your home? Value the good news that you don't measure up to all that God's called you to be. And that you're loved in spite of that. Put on display what it looks like that you as a child of God have an understanding of how you were chosen and adopted and loved and heaped blessing upon long before you did a single thing to contribute to anything, meaning it's not based on that. Show that to your children. Show that to your wife. Unconditionally accept your, your, your wife that way. Don't fall into performance traps. Bring the gospel into your joys. Bring the gospel into, into your discipline. Bring the gospel into grades and your leisure time and even your chores. Pray as a family. That's on you. It's on us, guys. Is your wife thriving? Look at your wife. Is your wife thriving? That's what you long for. You don't want to coexist with that woman. No bride wants to coexist with her husband. Now, it's not 100% on you to have your wife thriving. But God has blessed your wife with you to help nurture and care for that. And just like you could look at any football team and look around, and you could point to all kinds of different factors, but if there's backbiting and division and a losing record, and you look at all of that, the eyes always go to the coach. We understand this. We know this. It goes to the head and say, how's the head doing about this? I put a quote in your, uh, in your notes. It's from John Piper. He's a pastor in the Midwest. What I want to get from this is that both passive and aggressive men are absolutely blown up in Scripture as sinful and wicked. To be the aggressive one that rules with an iron fist leads completely unlike Christ, but like a Gentile, lording it over, is sinful and wicked. And to be the passive, what sometimes passes as good Christian guy, who's kind of nice and passive and stands by while essentially his village is raped, plundered, and, and ripped off out from under his watch, is wicked and sinful and is destroying homes. He says this, when sin entered the world, it ruined the harmony of marriage, not because it brought headship and submission into existence, but because it twisted man's humble, loving headship into hostile domination in some, in some men and lazy indifference in others. And it twisted women's, women's intelligent, willing submission into manipulative obsequiousness, which basically is compliance, in some women and brazen insubordination in others. Sin didn't create headship and submission. It ruined them and distorted them and made them ugly and destructive. Here's the third word, guys. The third word is romance. You are biblically obligated to romance your wife. Colossians chapter 3 says, don't be harsh with them. Don't treat them as one of the guys. Some guys have a hard time adjusting to this. She's not one of the guys. (laughs) She needs to be treated totally differently than anyone you've treated before. Women long to know that they're beautiful, so tell them, show them their immense value. Let me say this, that someone somewhere is noticing 
Your woman's beauty, her value, her charm, and the way that marriages break apart is that starts to stray. You've stopped paying attention to it. You've stopped valuing it. And someone somewhere in her day is noticing it. Women, be on your guard for that. But men, pay attention to that. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7 says this, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. That's because we don't understand. So we're commanded to understand. Go to school, guys, on this. Go to school on your bride or bride-to-be. By showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. Before you get up tight, that's talking about fine china. That's the picture, okay? Since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Advice is this. Date your wife, men. If you have kids, gross your kids out once in a while. They ought to go, oh, come on. That ought to be happening. You need to show the next generation of boys the value of every single woman out there. But, in particular, the immense extreme preciousness of this one woman that is your wife. That's how it ought to be. You know what's not going to help with this? This is not to be imposed by government, by schools, by programs in, in the social sector at all. This is in the home. This is you men showing your daughters, showing your sons what women are to be treated like. Proverbs 5.18 says this, Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. Don't rejoice in your wife when she's young. Rejoice in the wife of your youth. That applies for the rest of your life. Now here's a great gift that God gave to men uh, because some of you are severely challenged in this area. No, don't call out amen, women. Just let that one be. Some of you guys, I, I know, it's just hard. You're like, man, Tom, I need to go find this guy, Tom. He seems to be good at it. You're like, romance my wife. I wouldn't even know where to begin. If you have one finger and a library card, you can go to the library and you can type in this right here, google.com. Guys, come on. It's right there for you. Like no other age before, we have ideas just handed to us. Engage your woman's soul. Are you in gear or are you in neutral there? Sometimes guys go for years in neutral with engaging their woman's soul. They talk a lot, but they talk about just the stuff of life, never really engaging. I gave you a case study two weeks ago of a young couple that's been married probably eight, eight nine months now. I, I read from the wife. Now I want to read from the, the husband. He said this, I didn't know I had to encourage my wife as much when things got tough. And yes, there were rough spots. Most of our marriage was marked by my paramedic internship which meant I was gone six to seven days in a row most of the time, not getting paid, and sometimes being gone for 48 hours in a row. I want to make her happy and encourage her to grow closer to God, and the way that manifests itself is me serving her and doing all the honeydews, or whatever they are called. <laughs> That's great. That's a beautiful picture of an eight-month-old eight, month, eight month old groom just figuring it out. Love that. What if my wife is being irrational? You respond with gentleness and you respond with humility. What if she's acting crazy? Gentleness and humility. What if she's hard to lead? Gentleness, humility. What if she's strained? Read your Bible. See how Jesus pursues us. Gentleness and humility. You're in a covenant relationship. Pursue that woman. 
Band, come on up here. The most important day of your marriage, those of you who are married or those of you who are planning on getting married one day, is this. Catch this. Look up here for a minute. Most important day of your marriage is not the first, it's the last. Last day of your marriage. That's the most important one. Here's my question for you. Those of you who haven't arrived yet, is your marriage set up for a 40, 50, 60-year run should the Lord hold off and bless you with long life? Is it? Is it set up that way or is it, or is it not? That's the question we have before us. The pillars of marriage have been revealed to us. Head subordinate relationships have been laid out. What it looks like for men to love as Christ loved the church has been laid out for us. Moving forward, the only real question is this. Do you trust God? I mean, what if God asked you to build an ark when it wasn't even raining? What if God told you to take your staff and beat on this rock? What if God told you to to take this mud that had been made out of spit and put it on your eyes? Do you trust God or not? It's the same thing. What if God told you that the way to eternal life was to become like a little child in faith and to to be born again by trusting on the work of Jesus Christ done 2,000 years ago. It's an act of faith, isn't it? So is walking in marriage according to how the Bible lays it out. Charles Spurgeon, in a book called All of Grace, said this. I love this. It is ours to believe. Men, listen to this and claim this. Ready? It is ours to believe. It is the Lord's to create anew. He will not believe for us, neither are we to do regenerating work for Him. We can't do it on our own, men. Marriage like this is utterly impossible. Trust and walk as Jesus has instructed us. Let's pray. Jesus, we affirm with our mouth this morning that we can't live as the groom like we're instructed. We acknowledge that there was one perfect groom who pursued relentlessly and loves passionately, leads gently and sacrifices to the ultimate, and that's you. And you're our Savior. You're the one who will, who will guide and lead us men to where we need to go. And Father, we want to trust you in that. In Jesus' name, amen.